the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Animals occupy many spaces in a human-dominated world. Pets, food, sport, etc. But do they deserve more equality and justice than we offer them? What's the responsibility we hold to care better for the animals we share the planet with? And are we even willing to consider what that responsibility might look like? Today, we're going to talk with philosopher Martha Nussbaum, who says we owe animals a lot more than what we're giving them. That's next on Detroit Today, but first the news on NPR. Detroit Today is supported by the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've decided to join us today. So here's a question to start your Friday off on a kind of different note. What do we owe to the animals we share the planet with? If you know me at all, you know I really love animals. One of my first memories, in fact, is sitting in my high chair in the kitchen of the house where my family lived over on the west side when I was born and looking down at my dog, Oliver, a poodle, who would sit next to me in the kitchen waiting for me to drop whatever it was I was eating. And even today, I share my home with three pets two bulldogs, and a cat who recently joined us as a rescue animal. But I do wonder, how much should I really care about other animals on the planet? Animals that aren't my dogs or cats. We all know that factory farms, for instance, brutalize and kill animals. I've read stories about Chickens that are grown to be too fat to even move. Pigs who are put into tiny crates for much of their lives. And even how cows scream in agony for their children when they're taken away from them. But honestly, how much should I, how much should we want to protect those animals? What kind of responsibility do we have for them? Especially when, I'll be honest, I like to eat some animals as well. I eat hamburgers, I eat steak, I eat chicken. And there are a lot of other problems, of course, that we need to be dealing with, problems that we should all really care about. How much should this issue rank among things like climate change and racism, state-sanctioned violence, and a democracy that at times looks like it is about to topple over. So why should we consider animals on a more equal plane to us? Why should we use our precious time and resources to think about how to create a better world for them? 
And even if we were to care more for animals, what would that look like? What would we do differently? That's where I want to begin the conversation today. And we've got a really interesting guest to help us lead it. Martha Nussbaum is a distinguished professor of law and ethics and is appointed in both the philosophy department and at the law school at the University of Chicago. She's a highly acclaimed philosopher and has recently written a book called Justice for Animals, Our Collective Responsibility. She's now here to make the case for more animal justice to someone who I will admit up front is maybe a bit skeptical about our need or capacity to care more intentionally for the animals we share the planet with. So I want to start here. Let's talk about why we should try to care more for animals on a plane that's more similar to humans. We have, as I said in the open, limited time and resources. Why shouldn't we be putting that into helping humans and creating a better society for them? What is the case to pay more attention to the way we treat animals? Well, first of all, I think we have to really learn more and realize the extent to which humans dominate the planet, land, sea and air, and create massive problems for animals. And so we need to think, how, how did it happen that we did that? We're filling up the oceans with plastic. Whales are eating the plastic and dying of starvation because they can't eat anything else. Birds are dying in large numbers of air pollution, colliding into buildings that don't have adequate warning signs. And then on the land, all large mammals are endangered in the sense that their their habitats are shrinking. And we haven't really, the thing is, we haven't really thought about these problems. And there's a lot we can do about them. It's not a zero-sum game. I think our own lives would be improved if we had less single-use plastic or disposed of it more adequately through recycling. And, you know, the air pollution that hurts birds hurts us, too. And the signals that we can put on buildings, very low cost. We just put a decal on the outside of the window, and birds do not crash into it. So it's sheer heedlessness and negligence, I think, that leads to a lot of animal deaths. In the case of land animals, we really have to think about how humans and large animals, such as elephants, can share space together. And I think that really means thinking about population size in the human case, and maybe in the animal case, if elephants were not so endangered. But in any case, you know, thinking is what we need, where we need to begin. <laughs> so, you know, at the bottom of these questions, I think, is uh, some understanding about the relationship that exists in nature, I guess, between humankind and other animals. And that brings us to questions about consciousness and sentience and emotion that I'm not sure everybody either understands or maybe even agrees with. So I want to give you a little time to talk about why you think animals deserve more consideration than, than, than we give them and, and put it in the context of, of those questions about consciousness. What is the, 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 the natural comparison or relationship, I guess, between humankind and other animals? Okay. Well, first of all, in the last 30 years, scientists have done amazing work, and they've learned so much. And in writing this book, I myself learned a tremendous amount. And it's easy to get access to what's been 
written because scientists are very good at writing books for the general public. And what we've learned is that all, all, almost all animals, I would say almost all, are sentient, by which I mean having their own subjective perception of the world, being able to feel pain. Not just, they're not just automata, as we sometimes used to think. Even bony fish, not, not sharks, that's unclear, but bony fish are shown to be sentient and they feel pain. Sharks are on the borderline because they eat parts of their own bodies, so that does suggest that they, they don't feel pain. <laughs> but um, then about insects, there's also disagreement and further research needs to be done. But even the octopus and the squid are highly sentient and highly intelligent. And we've learned a lot more about the um, social learning of animals. So animals are not just genetic machines with capacities that pop into existence naturally, but they, they have communities, and they learn in those communities. And that's true of birds, it's true of whales, it's true of more or less all animals, that they need after birth to have their own community around them to learn to be the kind of thing they are. And so that makes us reflect what are we doing when we take a baby elephant and put it in a zoo? Mm. It's deprived of a chance to learn to be an elephant because it doesn't have the maternal community around it. Uh, the famous case of the, in the movie Blackfish, where the orca killed its own trainer. Mm -hmm. Well, that was the baby orca who had been snatched from its large group, where once again, the female members, and particularly in the case of orcas, it's very interesting. We've learned that postmenopausal females play a central role in teaching the young. Uh, it's the only other species we know where postmenopausal females are central players. But, but anyway, Tillicum, that one who went to SeaWorld, did not have a chance to learn to be an orca. And so it's not surprising that he behaved in a psychopathic way. Hmm. A human would, too, if it had been snatched from the human community. So we have to learn a lot about what it, what's necessary for animals to have decent lives. I do myself think that there are some animals who can do fine in a humane zoo with lots of space, and those would be smaller animals, birds, fish, and in some cases, smaller mammals. But the larger mammals, like an elephant, should never be kept in a zoo because to live well, elephants need quite a large group. Mm -hmm. They need a matri matriarchal herd and then the males wander around and meet up with the females occasionally. But they also need to cover about 200 miles a day, and no zoo can provide that kind of space. So apes maybe could be kept in a zoo if it's large enough for them to have their own community, but it has to be a large area and it, where they can have a social life. Mm -hmm. Animals are highly so intelligent, and their intelligence is social. So my own basic view is what we should be thinking about is not just not inflicting pain. That's great, but it's not enough. We should be thinking of what, what it takes to give an animal a shot at having a, a rich and flourishing life as the kind of animal it is, and we need to craft our policies accordingly. I also don't think we should measure the worth of an animal by how close it is to us. <laughs> Animals evolve to do well in their own ecological niche, and there's no reason why they should be like us. Some animals have senses that we don't have, like birds can navigate by perceiving magnetic fields. We can't do that, but then, since we don't fly, we, we actually don't need to do that. And again, whales 
can navigate the world largely through sound, not so much by smell or sight. And so when we do things in the ocean that create a huge amount of noise, like oil drilling and all of the things associated with it, we disturb their natural life. And we know that the stress levels of whales have have risen enormously in the last few years. So we just need to learn a lot and think of animals as the animals they are. Again, dolphins have capacities that we don't have to identify what's inside an object by what's called echolocation. So one example of this was that a, a dolphin in a theme park was able to signal to her trainer that the trainer was pregnant because she could see, so to speak, through her echolocation what was inside the trainer, but the trainer herself hadn't realized that. So these are things that we don't do, but there's no reason to criticize our, our own equipment. We don't need to do those particular things. But rather than making a, a ranking then of animals depending on likeness to humans, I think we should just be very impressed at the wonderful ways animals have evolved to do well in their own ecological niche. Squirrels are incredibly resilient, and they actually have the ability, which is sometimes associated with high-level consciousness, to think of what other animals are thinking. So when they hide their nuts, they have to work out, well, Mm -hmm. where is the place which other squirrels will not go to? And uh, some other animals have that ability as well, a lot of birds and certainly dogs. So, you know, we're we're just not the only animal in the world. Mm -hmm. We have abilities that sort of suit us for our ecological niche, but it must be said that the peacemaking abilities of apes are much better and more stable than our own. Apes sometimes have great conflicts, but they also have elaborate techniques for resolving conflict. And I think humans have not done so well on that, certainly recently. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking with Martha Nussbaum. Uh, she is a professor of law and ethics in the philosophy department and at the law school at the University of Chicago. She recently wrote a book titled Justice for Animals, Our Collective Responsibility. We're talking about uh, the way that we coexist with the other animals on our planet and whether we could do better by them by rethinking the relationship that we have to them, rethinking the personal relationship, perhaps, that we have with uh, some animals, but also thinking about the way in which we live on the planet and how it affects animals. Uh, We'd love to hear from you during the conversation as well. Uh, What do you think we owe animals on this planet? Uh, Animals outside of the pets who might live in our homes. Uh, How do you think we should be treating them? Do you think we shouldn't kill and eat them by the millions as we do now? Is there any reason that we should treat our dogs or our cats so much better than we treat pigs or cows or fish? Alternatively, do you think uh, maybe this is a problem that we don't have a lot of time to think about or dedicate a lot of energy toward solving because we have other things that we need to, to, to focus on. Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation that way. Also, uh, give us a call and let us know just what the role of other animals is in your life. Are you somebody who has and enjoys 
pets? Are you somebody who likes to eat animals? Are you a meat eater? Or are you somebody who has decided that that's not okay, uh, that eating animals um, is not uh, is not acceptable behavior for, for human beings? Uh, would love to know how you make sense of the relationship between humankind, and other animals. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag us, and uh, we can we can uh, work you into the conversation that way. Uh, Martha, before we get to our listeners, uh, I, I want to talk about... Um, I want to talk about the the difference that uh, that you do, that you point out in the book. Uh, you talk about five areas of animal life: land, sea, domestic meat, farming, uh, air, and domestic companionship. Um, talk about the differences of these experiences and why you explore them that way in the book. Well, I think it's just a natural way to explore. Uh, I think a lot of people, as you have already said love and live with companion animals, and I've done that too. I don't right now because I live in a small city apartment, and I don't think I could give a dog a decent amount of exercise Mm -hmm. or indeed attention because I travel a lot and so forth. But anyway, I mean, I I know know very well what it is to love and, and care for a companion animal. But, you know, other animals who are just as intelligent and social and complicated, such as pigs, we don't think about it, and we almost stop ourselves from thinking about it, because if we did really realize the conditions in which they live, it would just have to cause a change in our behavior. Now, at this point, I think the information is out there. The big agricultural businesses have tried to prevent us from having access to information about what's going on. There are even laws in a lot of states that are called ag-gag laws, that is laws forbidding reporting mm-hmm. or photography of what goes on in the factory farming industry. So there you have to carve that out as a separate area because that's, it's dealt with separately in law. A lot of states have now repealed those ag-gag laws on grounds of free speech and uh, for other reasons as well. And I think that's, that's one of the frontiers. I'm an incrementalist, and I think if we end the worst abuses first, that's a good starting point, and then we later get to the harder issues. So there are the gag laws that we have to think about. In other areas, I think there are just lots of things that we've never thought about. Last spring, my law school building, which is a 1950s glass building, found a lot of bird corpses on the ground. Mm. The students were really horrified and didn't know what had happened. What had happened was that the migration path of certain migratory birds had shifted, and here we were, right in the middle of that, in this glass building that had done nothing to turn off the lights or prevent birds from thinking that glass was air. And so, of course, rightly, the students said to the dean, what are you going to do about this? Now, as it happens, our dean is an avid birder, and he cares a lot about animals. So right away, we re-equipped the building with the kind of stickers that are recommended to warn off birds, and we have not had that problem again. And Hmm. the city of Chicago has been really proactive on that, so now that's really mandatory for all tall buildings. Not only that, but the curtailing of light inside at night in certain seasons of migration. So those are things that we didn't think about, and just just thinking about it made it not that hard to solve the problem. So those are 
different areas. Mm-hmm. I, I think the area of animals who live in what used to be called the wild has got to be treated as a separate area, if only to point out that actually there is no such thing as go wild anymore because all spaces that animals live in are really controlled by human beings. Mm-hmm. So the largest wild space you get is a large animal refuge in Africa, which is curated by human beings and often curated very well. They keep out the poachers, they spray for tsetse flies, but humans are in control, so they better make sure that their control is a good kind of control. So that's a different area. And then in, in terms of law, we have to think especially hard about animals who are not confined to one area. Mm-hmm. It's pretty easy for the city of Chicago to regulate the sale of puppies bred in puppy mills. I mean, it's hard to stop the puppy mills because they're not in Illinois, they're in Missouri. But to regulate the sale in such a way that you can only acquire a companion animal now through adoption in Chicago, that's pretty easy to do. But they're animals that don't belong to a single nation even. Whales, dolphins, they're roaming around in the seas. So there, the, the problem is first to learn what we're doing the plastics in the sea, the oil drilling that creates tremendous noise and stress. But we also have to think about the ways that people do fishing. So lobster fishermen in Maine are creating almost lethal problems for right whales. There are only 340 right whales in the world. And the way that lobster fishermen use a particular kind of line has led to the line getting wrapped around the body of the whale, cutting into it, and causing, in most cases, lethal injuries. So that is, it's easy to think about that once Mm -hmm. you start thinking. It costs more. So recently in the Congress, Susan Collins opposed a part of the budget law that would have required lobster fishermen to use a more humane type of line that disengaged when it caught onto a whale. I I think that was very bad. She was able to get that through. But anyway, there, there are lots of other things like that, where if we start thinking, we can do something. We can do something different. And okay. the U.S. Navy has now been forbidden from using sonar in the coastal waters off the United States because of the impact that it has on whales. It causes delayed migration, delayed reproduction, sure. heightened stress, and, and so forth. And, but that's in the coastal waters. When you get out into the high seas, it really is in a primitive state. Law, international law about animals is almost non-existent. Yeah, yeah. The International Whaling Commission was founded in order to make sure that enough whales continue to remain alive, that we can continue to hunt them down and kill them. Mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. was its purpose. Now, right. by this time, there are some people in the commission who really care about whales, and they've introduced a complete moratorium on whale harpooning, which, of course, there's no reason for it, because we don't need whale oil anymore, and we don't eat whale meat anymore. Right. So it's yeah. gratuitous. Uh, Martha, we've got we've to take a quick break. Okay. This is so wonderful. I don't want to cut you <laughs> off. But uh, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Martha Nussbaum. We'll also get to you, our listeners, uh, on the phones and on social. Chris in Ontario, Harry in Sterling Heights, Howard in Bloomfield Hills. You'll be up first. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number here. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag us. We'll include you in the the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. 
WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today. 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've joined us. Our guest today is Martha Nussbaum. She's a professor of law and ethics in both the philosophy department and at the law school at the University of Chicago. She recently wrote a book titled Justice for Animals, Our Collective Responsibility. That's the question we're grappling with today. What do we owe the other animals that we share the planet with? Uh, Not just the pets who live in our homes, but uh, the animals that we keep in zoos or on farms, uh, in reserves. Uh, What is it that we should be thinking about when we think about the relationship between humankind and other animals on our planet? Uh, We want to hear from you as well during the conversation. 313-577-1019 is the number here. That's 313-577-1019. 1019. You can also go to Twitter and leave comments there, and we can work you into the conversation. Let's start today with Howard in Bloomfield Hills. Howard, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you. I should say that uh, while I am a lawyer, I don't practice in animal law or specialize in it, but <laughs> I do disagree with you in one area. Okay, when you talk about uh, zoos and, you know, the harm that you say that it does to, you know, the large mammals and other animal social relations. I've concluded that zoos and similar reserve areas are essential to preserve these animals from extinction and destruction because, and some of the things that you've said about what's going on with animals, but if you look at what's happening with animals, say large mammals in Africa and Asia, I mean, a lot of them are close to extinction. And the way I see it, zoos and you know other kinds of reserve areas like that are the only ways to save these animals from extinction. Hmm. You know? It's an interesting question, Howard, uh, you know, this idea that maybe we are saving animals by keeping them in, in places where they wouldn't be hunted uh, in the wild. Uh, Martha Nussbaum, how, how do you respond to what Howard's well, asking Howard. here? First of all, I would distinguish between large animal reserves and zoos, where animals are each in their solitary little cage. The large reserves, I have no problem with. I think they're great, and if they're well-tended, as they often are, they they are major means of keeping poaching to a minimum and keeping animals in, in the business of living. But, you know, the typical zoo puts one elephant in a cage with no other elephants. And it's just not a life. It's not an elephant life. Now, people defend that on the grounds that it is the only way that children learn about elephants. But today, we have so many other means. I think, in general, my my view of these things is we should use technology to solve some of these problems. And in this case, film and all kinds of tech, you know, videos and audio programs and so on can tell us tell kids so much about elephants that they don't need to go to Africa and go on eco-safari. <clears throat> I myself have loved going on eco-safaris, but I think we really don't need the typical zoo for large creatures like elephants. 
No, you know, I, as I said, I think it's different with smaller mammals where we can, in the zoo, recreate the kind of environment that they naturally would live in, but not, not for elephants, I, I think. And elephants are endangered largely because of poaching. But unfortunately, poaching and zoos go hand in hand in the following way, that a lot of the poachers, first of all, they cut off the tusks and the trunk and the ears and so on of the animal that they kill, which is an adult animal, and they import those into the illegal ivory trade, and the tusks and the other trophies are sent around to people who want to pay big money for those. But then they take the baby elephants, and they sell them to commercial zoos, often in the United States. My daughter used to work with an organization called Friends of Animals, and they got an injunction against the importation of 18 baby elephants into U.S. zoos. But the trouble was, by the time they learned of the injunction, the elephants had already been smuggled onto the airplanes. So now the summer in Dallas, summer in Wichita, and so forth. But baby elephants are a sure draw for commercial zoos, and that actually fuels the illegal killing of adult animals so that the babies can be kidnapped. So it's a, it's a very unfortunate and horrible nexus, and it does not help keep elephants alive. Mm. Uh, again, Howard, really appreciate the the call and the provocative question. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go next to Chris in Ontario. Chris, welcome to the show. Are you there, Chris? I am here right now. Yeah, yeah go ahead. I don't really have a question. Just wanted to make a comment. Um, I had never heard of Martha before until this morning driving, just on my way to pick up some stuff. And uh, I just am I'm blown away, actually. Um, I, I consider myself pretty ethical as far as the way I think. I'm 51 years old, and I have a 12-year-old son. And I've just kind of been blown away right now at, uh, at what I've been listening to. And I know a lot of torture has been happening to animals for forever. I mean, we we think we're dominant just because we think, but... It's amazing that science and technology has brought us here today to to a thinking point mm. and a tipping point, for sure, for for a lot of people. But um, listening to, I love lobster, I love crab, and I'm so embarrassed now <laughs> at, at my <laughs> misconception on really, truly, I have to think of where I get all my stuff from now. And it's just, it. I'm blown away. And just looking at her Wikipedia page and looking at her and, and her, her life and her study and it just... I'm emotional. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm just. I'm really proud that there's people like her on Earth, and uh, wow. makes Chris. me uh, makes me think. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Chris. I really appreciate that. But let me tell you that I got to this place largely through my daughter, who was a lawyer, as I mentioned, for animal welfare and animal rights. And we started. She educated me, particularly about wild animals that I, I didn't know much about. And we started writing articles together, but then she, she got ill, and she died in 2019. And at that point, I thought, <clears throat> really, what can I do? You know, it's so devastating to lose your only child. I, nothing is more devastating. But I thought what I can do is to complete this book, which I had already started, and really try to carry her message, which was a, particularly a message about whales and orcas. But anyway, her general message about animal welfare to the larger public, and that's what I'm trying to do. So, so you know, for someone like Chris or someone like uh, you, as as you point out, this this kind of journey uh, to a different space, thinking about 
about animals. Can you talk about things that maybe you do differently now? Um, the the kinds of things that the kind of choices that you make that you wouldn't have made before you 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 thought the way you did. Well, <clears throat> I think I, I had already <clears throat> thought a lot about zoos, and I had also thought a lot about medical experimentation, and that's one place where I think technology is already helping us because we're able to do experiments now by computer simulation and more and more that's getting past the need for hurting animals and medical experimentation. But what I, I'm much more sensitive, first of all, to the use of single-use plastic. Our law school still offers this option. Now we're supposed to recycle the bottles, but a lot of people don't. And I've just taken to, <laughs> yesterday I was giving a major presentation of my next book to the law faculty, and I walked down three flights from my office with a full cup of water in a, in a mug and put that on a table. But then I jostled the table and spilled it all over the place, <laughs> made a terrible mess. But anyway, I, that's what I do. I just drink from either a, a metal bottle, which I can carry around with me, or in this case, a mug, and right now on my desk I have a mug, because it's just easy to do that if you start thinking. Uh, I also am very sensitive to the shoes I wear, which are mainly cloth. And I try to use cloth, not so much. I mean, a lot of the synthetic plastic materials are bad for the environment in different ways. But anyway, I'm I'm pretty athletic, and I use basically gym shoes as my normal shoes. And then, in terms of handbags, I used to be a great lover of designer handbags, mm. and I have to tell you, I still am. But Stella McCartney is a vegan designer, and she makes wonderful designer handbags. So I am a great <laughs> fan of Stella McCartney. And then, I more recently, I, I find that vegan leather is very abrasive. It's hard, and it kind of cuts into your, you. Might have very sensitive skin. So I'm using also cloth designer handbags, and, you know, all these things are things I wouldn't have even thought about before. Mm. I have no, I've thought about wool, and there are vegans who think you should never shear sheep for their wool, but I think that the test should always be, does it hurt the animal's ability to lead its own life or help it? And the shearing of sheep it actually helps the animal because animal, sheep can't live well unless right. their their wool is shorn. It's too heavy. It drags them down. So they've evolved to be that way, and now that they are that way, we, we need to shear them. We need to make sure that the sheep that are shorn have good working conditions, which they uh, don't always have, and that's, but that's a separate issue. So I still wear wool. Uh, so anyway, I just think about all these things. And uh, in terms of eating... You know, it's, I, I find that a very hard issue, and I yeah. think a lot of... Uh, that would be my toughest issue, I think. But I never liked meat, and I haven't eaten meat for a very long time, just for health reasons, but I love fish, and I do eat fish. Now, then I thought, well, we have to consider several things. First of all, can these animals have a decent life up until the time they're killed? Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of animals could if the practices were reformed, and I think Whole Foods, for example, has done a lot to make us aware of the conditions under which the animals that we might eat live. So I think that's the first question one should ask. But in the, key, the further question is, when is an animal actually harmed by death? What is the harm of death? Now, that's an old philosophical question, and sure. I have thought about that question since I worked on the ancient Greek philosophers. And Epicurus thought, well, death is not a harm because 
poof, you're gone, and you're not there anymore, so how can you be harmed? But I thought that was too simple, because the way you're harmed, if you die prematurely when your life is in full flow, is that projects that you're in the middle of are cut short. I mean, take my daughter's life, who died at 47. She, a lot of projects that she was in the middle of are simply cut short, and uh, even though I'm 75, I still feel <laughs> that I have plenty of projects underway, and I would be harmed by death. But fish, unlike most animals, live in the moment. And so a lot of people, including Jeremy Bentham in the 18th century and Peter Singer today, think that if an animal is like that, living in the moment with no temporally extended projects, and the animal has a decent life and is killed painlessly, Mm -hmm. then it would be okay to eat that animal. Actually, Singer said he would do that, except that he was a public figure and people wouldn't understand it, and so he thinks a simpler policy is better. But since I'm a pretty athletic person, age 75, and I need about 60 grams of protein per day to be healthy, uh, I I do eat fish. And I actually think it's more humane than patronizing the dairy industry, which I still do, but I don't know quite how to get out of it. But, But that industry... It inflicts such emotional pain and suffering on the cows who have their baby ripped from them. And it's very difficult to imagine it being reformed in order to be adequate, whereas the egg industry, I think, can perfectly well be reformed in in a way that makes it ethically adequate. It already has been in states that insist on cage-free eggs. And and so, you know, enough eggs are left for the chickens themselves, and then we, we take the rest. So yeah. I think about these things, and then I, I think the, the 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 thought is the thing that that sort of stands out to me is is uh, you know going through life and consciously making a point of considering alternatives to the things that we do. We need we do need to take another quick break, but but uh, when we come back, we'll continue this conversation with uh, Martha Nussbaum. We'll also continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. 313-577-1019 here in Sterling Heights. Vanetta in Detroit. Uh, we'll get to you next. Again, if you want to join them, 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Today, I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for joining. Our guest is Martha Nussbaum, a professor of law and ethics in the philosophy department at the law school at the University of Chicago. She recently wrote a book titled Justice for Animals, Our Collective Responsibility. That's what we're talking about is what our responsibility is to the other animals uh, that we share the planet with. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. It's 313-577-1019. You can also go to uh, Twitter and hashtag us, and we'll try to include you that way. Let's go to Vanetta in Detroit. Vanetta, welcome to the show. Good morning. Good morning. Hi. Thank you very much. Sure. Hey, um, Stephen, again, another great show. Um, Martha, I think we are kindred sisters in some way or another. I've been thinking about this for a while now, um, a couple years, not knowing what to, oh, how to address it personally, um, other than, you know, just um, 
volunteering and fostering and, you know, donating. Uh, mainly, though, it has been to um, animal or specifically non-kill uh, animal shelters, dog shelters in Metro Detroit. But um, just having in a larger um, um, responsibility, I think, is the word. I, I think we are, as human beings, um, sister kingdoms, a sister kingdom to the animal species, um, and particularly mammals. But um, And we, we share the same creator. And I believe we are to be stewards of not just the earth, but all of its resources, including the animal kingdom, including um, the natural resources, fresh water, um, uh, uh, oil, uh, you know, and uh, clean environment, clean air. Um, I, I think that is our responsibilities as, uh, it should be our responsibilities as just people who live on the planet. Mm. <laughs> we mm. have a debt to this. To, um, to keep everything in functioning order, not just functioning order, but the best possible order that it can be to maintain a balance. Yeah. Um, and not just a balance, but a um, harmony. And so I, I, do, um, I do think that, we, that animals can be used as food. I do believe that, but I think the process can be so much more humane. Yeah. Vanetta, um, I, I, really, I really appreciate the call and... Uh, and and the comments and and I think yeah. you're really capturing exactly what Martha Nussbaum is is talking about. Yeah, I want to thank you. I thought that was very eloquent and beautiful. And I want to add that a lot of the religious traditions that your listeners will belong to emphasize that our we're not supposed to have dominion in the sense of brutal masters, but in the sense as as you rightly put it of intelligent. Stewards. Mm. I'm I'm Jewish, and so I've thought about this a lot in that context. And the word that's used for dominion in Genesis is a Hebrew word rada, where Robert Alter, in his translations of, of the Bible, writes very well about this. That it really doesn't mean dominion in the sense of mastership. It means exactly as you say, intelligent stewardship. But we're not doing that, <laughs> and we we should think more than we do. Yeah, yeah. Again, Vanetta, really appreciate the call and the comments. Let's go to Harry in Sterling Heights. Harry, welcome to the show. Yeah, great, uh, great subject. I'm an animal lover. I feed the squirrels, and I do everything I can. I've had dogs all my life. I had a good customer, and she was an animal lover, but she had a display there of a polar bear and a lion that was shot by some big game hunter. Mm. I, I just can't get it. I mean, what's, what's the fun of hunting? Uh, instead of taking a gun, take a camera. <laughs> that's great advice Harry. and and look i have got a lot of close friends who are avid hunters and and i've worked for a really long time to try to understand more about why they do what they do and and what they do and the the, the sort of uh the cultural significance of uh, of what they're doing I, I have to admit that it's still something that that defies my understanding um, I'm not a big gun person to begin with, but the idea of using a gun to, to, to shoot an animal for for sport is is still something I don't quite understand. Martha, how do you feel hunting fits into well, the I think you're in, talking in some about? prehistory, humans were hunting for subsistence, and that's different because if you're really doing it in order to survive, even Jeremy Bentham said, "Well, we could make an exception for survival." But today, it's, it's a kind of sport. I mean, British fox hunting is a, an elite sport. Other kinds of hunting are less elite sports. 
but it's in order to uh, put on a display of masculinity, so to speak, and show how tough you are in the face of nature. And, you know, we have lots of ways of being tough. Some of them are better than others. And I, I guess I think through history, human beings have found substitute behaviors to show their courage and their toughness. Mm-hmm. Most sports really were invented with that in mind. And uh, while I am not, uh, I'm worried about professional football as perhaps too brutal and causing the loss of many young minds through CTE, I think that was clearly a substitute, you know, for the brutality of other kinds of interactions with nature. And I think we just have to rethink, how are we going to cultivate courage? How are we going to cultivate even resilience and toughness? And we don't need to hunt down animals who are pretty helpless against us. There's actually a whole industry of importing wild animals into the United States specifically for the purpose of having kind of bogus big game hunts Mm -hmm. on private ranches. This is described beautifully in Matthew Scully's book, Dominion. He was a Republican speechwriter, so he got invited to some of these safari mm-hmm. hunts in California. And it, it's terrible, you know, to take an animal who's in a corral and have it shot at point-blank range just so some big shot can feel like a big game hunter. Mm. There's no need for that. And the African countries have realized that. They don't allow hunting. They have eco-safaris instead. And sure. so, as you say, use, use a camera. Right. Right. Uh, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Christina in Oakland Township. Hi, um, Stephen, and your guest. I wanted to thank your guest for the good work she's doing, and I wanted to make a comment about our animals, our wild animals that are um, native to like Michigan, and the practice of going in and building homes and commercial property and just mm. wiping out their habitat. Excuse me. And I think there should be some laws enacted that for every so many houses, there should be so much wild space left to protect those animals. Our roads are full of roadkill, squirrels, deer, skunks, possums, coyotes. Yeah, Christina, you're you're absolutely right about the the ways in which development, not just here, but but all across the country, is is making it harder for animals to live in their their natural environments, Martha. That but I do think we're catching up. I do think that in most places, though, there's a requirement for an environmental impact study. Now, sometimes it's just pro forma. But I must say, here in Chicago, we do pretty well because we have been able to preserve the whole lakeshore as public parkland. That was done by Burnham in the 19th century. But we also have preserved all these forest preserves. And when animals come into the cities, like coyotes, their intelligent policies of don't just go and shoot the coyote, but figure out ways to negotiate a space for the coyote to live with people. And when birds are endangered, well, Chicago has become a kind of home for rare species of birds because they're protected so well around here. The Chicago Tribune has been very instrumental in constantly on the front page you get stories about rare birds that are sighted, what are their problems, what can you do to help them. So, you know, we need the the press and the media, we need city politics, which in Chicago is surprisingly Mm -hmm. pro-animal, and we need, uh, you know, just everyone to chip in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Again, Christina, I appreciate the call. Let's quickly go to Charlie in Detroit. Charlie, I've only got about a minute and a half left. Go ahead. I just just wanted to say 
I am a deer hunter. I don't own any handguns. I don't believe in that. But mm-hmm. what will we do here in Michigan if it weren't for the hunters to control our deer population? Let them starve? Uh, that's a great question, Charlie. And like I said, I'm, I'm somebody who has struggled for a long time with how to think about hunting. And, and you raise a good point about the deer population, which would be out of control. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of animal contraception, I should say. Not all animal advocates agree with me. But I think in cases like that, where the alternatives are starvation or reintroducing hunting as a population curb, it's sensible to do what humans do and use contraception. Much more research needs to be done about how this can be done without affecting animal health. But it's also now being used to curb rat population. Rather than killing a lot of rats, you just make sure that when they breed, a lot of them are sterile, and that holds the numbers down. So anyway, that, that is my thing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Martha Nussbaum, it was really great to have you here with us uh, on Detroit Today. And, and congratulations uh, on, the, on the book, uh, Justice for Animals, Our Collective Responsibility. Thank really you so much, Stephen. Your listeners are great, and you're great, and I really enjoy this. Oh, no, this was, this was a really great conversation. Thank you so much Thank you. for being here. Okay, okay. bye. Yeah. Uh, Okay, that's going to do it for us this week. Tune in on Monday when we're going to be talking with MacArthur Award winner Emily Wang about the health costs of incarceration. Really uh, important, uh, continued conversation about the costs of uh, the criminal uh, justice system and the carceral state here in uh, in the United States and, of course, here in Detroit and in Michigan. Also, I want to note that uh, we had a Twitter listener um, who pointed out that we have not yet talked about this massive earthquake in Syria and Turkey and the incredible death toll there. Of course, this is a region of the world that has strong connections uh, to that part of the world, and just uh, we are we are still working on uh, how we want to address that. We will talk about it, of course, here on the show, and talk about it in the context uh, of Michigan and. Detroit. Also, if you love this show and love listening to it, uh, you should share it with your friends and your relatives, all the people in your social circles. So you can find it on WDET.org or on our Detroit Today podcast, which you can find wherever you get podcasts. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again next week.